Welcome to the Curious Anarchy Podcast. Today we have another episode of by invitation only, or is it by invite only? I'm not sure. I need to figure that out. But the point is, is that I'm here, Jermaine Gregory, with my co-host Mark Wilson. Once again, it's Monday morning. Good morning, Australasia. Hey. So today we're going to be traveling to Australasia, both through time and space, the two Cape Crusaders of Curious Anarchy (laughs) shall be presenting uh, heroes from Australasia. Anything you'd like to share? Um, Well, it's interesting because I think you and I would both agree that we struggled more with this one than we did with the other continents we were tackling. Um, less is known, and perhaps there are maybe reasons why less is known. Uh, but the one thing I think we need to take a backdrop and think about is this. We talk about the wholesale abuse, uh, colonization, slavery, and destruction of black people. We talk about the concentration camps and the destruction of the Jewish people. But I think proportionately and and percentage-wise, no greater destruction and murder has happened than of that of the Aboriginals of of, uh, Australia, probably uh, New Zealand as well, in terms of the numbers they had and the numbers that were left after the British had settled in those places. Uh, It's it's an easily forgotten discussion, and it's a shame because the whole culture, history, uh, education has been wiped out uh, because of the greed of a certain number of people from completely the other side of the continent. So that's the backdrop against what we're starting this this, this tea party with. Okay, so <clears throat> we're getting on the plane. <laughs> Heathrow or Gatwick. And we're boarding, taking off down the runway, heading south of the the equator and eastwards, um, landing in, ooh, where should we land? We could land in... I think the fairest place to land would be Tasmania. Okay, okay, yeah. That's halfway between... In theory, halfway between it's probably nearer to Australia. It's halfway between New Zealand and Australia, so that would be probably a good place to to put down. I think really, I think that'd be a good place to start. Excellent. We go to Holbert, the capital, and we sit in the Parliament House and invite five people from Australia or New Zealand or both uh, um, throughout history to a dinner party there. So. Who is your first guest, then, Mark? Well, I thought, given the intro I gave, <laughs> it would be suitable yeah. or fitting to invite William Lanny. Okay. okay. Also known as King Billy. He right. was a Tasmanian Aboriginal. Mm-hmm. And he, he might well be known as the last fully-blooded Aboriginal Tasmanian man. So... To all records that we have, he's the last man in Tasmania from the Aboriginal culture. 
He was born in 1842. He, he grew up in a um, Aboriginal camp because there were camps by then. His native his native name was lost by then, which was probably William Lanay. Um, and he became um, and he became known as King Billy or William Laney. Um, he he moved to the Oyster Coast and was sent to an orphanage in Hobart, Hobart, which is where we're having this meal. He then joined a whaling ship and regularly visited Oyster Cove where he had grown up. He died in, 19, in 1869, sorry, from cholera and dysentery. So why would I want to invite him to our dinner party? I think it would be a tribute and a fitting um, place to have somebody who literally carries the last line of his whole culture and history. The last person left of that of that lineage, and I just would like to talk to him about how he feels about uh, watching that legacy disappear after he disappeared. So I think it would be quite an interesting being a guest to have, quite an interesting person to sit down and have a kind of a sort of talk about culture and history with. What about yourself, Jermaine? Who would your first guest be? That was a really good one. And if I am led to believe that this trend shall continue, then it will be a very interesting episode. Um, mm. Okay, so my first guest um, is Johnny Muller. Okay. Born Johnny, let me get this right, Anarimin. Anarimin. Okay. Right, so, he was a uh, became a leading Victorian cricketer, and he led the 1868 Aboriginal Cricket Tour of England. This wow. was the first time that a group of sports people had travelled outside of Australia. Now think about that in terms of the Aboriginal Cricket Tour. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, he was a bit of an all-rounder, apparently. Bowler, batsman, wicketkeeper. Um, very, very prolific in in his uh, throughout his career. Um, he had a batting average of twenty, which I think is I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's good or bad, but um, you know, I'm afraid you we're, we're in the afraid. same boat there. I'm afraid we yeah. can ask. We can ask at the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for any cricket fans out there that might be listening, yeah. is, is that good or bad? I don't know. Um, yeah, he, really. he also he also bowled one thousand eight hundred and seventy-seven overs. That sounds like quite a lot. That's a lot of overs. Like quite a lot. Then it's a very long game as well. Yeah, <laughs> eight hundred and thirty-one were maidens, and he wow. took two hundred and forty-five wickets at ten apiece. Like, wow. That's incredible. Um, and, well, the, the, the main part of the legacy is that this was the first time an organised group of sports people had travelled outside. And these were the indigenous people. These weren't the, the people who had colonised Australia and, and taken yeah. over and promoted themselves. Um, yeah. There was a, uh, a memorial built to honour Muller, or Anaramin, um, in Harrow, Victoria, where the local sports ground is Johnny Muller Oval. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah. Um, so there's a, a local tournament that takes place 
in order to honour him called the John and Muller Memorial Trophy and I've invited him because one this is this is an unsung hero clearly for me I've never heard of this person before and I, I can't say that I have seen his name before um, and it's just be interesting to just hear again sport related that intersection of racism and how the the, the conflict kind of played out between the colonizers that came over and the indigenous people there and to really just hear his story yeah I'd love to have him on the podcast <laughs> that'll be sure that'd be crazy yeah uh, that's left me a little bit stumped there. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, your airport's making a lot of noise over there. I know. I know. Um, <laughs> who Who would be your second guest then? So I wonder if I said the name. I wonder if you know who I'm talking about. I'm hoping you would, but we'll try anyway. Um, Jakinda Ardern. Ah, okay, okay, cool, yeah, awesome. So, so she's the the prime minister of uh, New Zealand, um, and I thought it was only fitting to move from the very origins of the destruction of the nation to somebody who's trying to lift the nations by their shoestrings to a higher plane, to a higher place. Um, most people recognize her as one of the truly great leaders in the world today. When we're suffering from world leaders who are greedy and egotistic and narcissistic, it's so nice to see somebody who is thoughtful, uh, community-orientated, kind, and uh, open to ideas. She, she, um, I think it's fair to say that she she encumbers. What's the word encumbers? She she uh, encompasses. Encompasses. Thank you. That was the word I was looking for. Thank you. Do you mean it's a bit early? So I'm going to say that she encompasses the values of of of, of humanita- humanita- humanitarianism. So she, for example, a lot of her policies are around things like social housing, social inequality, uh, poverty. So she's trying to, you know, stopping gun laws. She's trying to do all the things that can make it a better society. A lot of people ask me, and I and I and I throw it back to the pod, what the world would look like if we had most countries led by women and, and women of sensitivity, rather than the kind of old, angry men that seek to run uh, the world. It's, it's interesting that you know we watch programs about grumpy old men, from you know from Victor Meldrew to uh, Walter Maté, you know, these grumpy old men who moan about everything. And we've kind of handed the world over to them at the moment. It's kind of a weird scenario because yeah. some people often say to me, it'd be better if those who just get, got in a boxing ring rather than having all these world wars all the time. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, you can't help but think that with people like Jakinda in charge, it wouldn't need to go down that path at all. Um, I love the fact that she's not afraid to do things like challenge the norms, that she's prepared to breastfeed in, in the parliament, you know, that she even brought a baby to the UN. I mean, I love that. It's, there's a sense of freshness and a sense of humanitarianism that is lacking. You know, these stiff-suited Democrats who, who don't help anyone compared to this kind of character who's hopefully the new wave of politicians. 
So I think it'd be very interesting to sit down and talk to her. Um, you know, like if nothing else, just to ask her, like she's met with people like Trump and, and Boris. I wonder what her views are over a glass of New Zealand red wine. What her views would be about those characters that she has to day to day. Even um, Merkel in Germany, well, you know, what was the relationship like? What were they really like? How would she have hoped to challenge their viewpoints? You know, say around something like the environment. She's consciously aware of the environment in a way that a lot of the world isn't. New Zealand's much more of a an outdoor place, and the environment affects them much, much more. You know, I, I can't help but think there's a lot of Australians that would probably wish to have her as the, their prime minister as well. And if you disagree with that, please contact us on the podcast. But I mean, I can't imagine many people would. But uh, that's what we're here to explore these ideas. Jermaine, who's your second guest? Mm, my my second guest, quite an interesting one. It's another sport-related one. This time, a little bit more uh, recent, more modern time. Uh, New Zealand, we're heading to this time, and this guest is John Aloni. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about him. Now, I I grew up watching a bit of rugby. He's not a particular rugby fan, but I knew that whenever New Zealand were playing and John Alomi was playing, it was going to be exciting. This guy began his, his international career at the age of 19. He was, he was just over 19 when he began playing. He was playing on the wing and had 63 international caps and 37 tries. I don't know how significant that is, but <laughs> I imagine that's quite a lot. I remember seeing him get the, the, the I don't know if they call it a ball, the, the rugby ball, and just run. He was a machine. I just remember having these these flashes. Like, he was like the Usain Bolt of rugby. <laughs> yeah, know? no, he really was. And, and, and he really was. Right. And he, he was huge. And, and to think, Obviously, rugby is the kind of game where, you know, it's quite rough, unlike football. Um, imagine him, the size of him, careering towards you and you... Well, no, like... I mean, just to put it in context, <laughs> put it in context, in rugby, the huge people usually play in the scrum. They're the forwards and they're massive, right? And usually you put your fast little guys on the wing. Mm-hmm. He was a huge guy on the wing that was fast. <laughs> and this amazing videotape of him going through the English defence. Like, um, like it was butter. I mean, literally yeah. walking through them. And I think in the final, I might be wrong, but I've got a feeling that was the Invictus final. New Zealand lost to South Africa. Mm-hmm. And they had to change their whole defence to accommodate stopping a winger. Yeah. When usually your problems in rugby come through the middle when the, you know you got 15 oh no sorry what is it, it says two, uh, nine guys of, of 30 stone running at you usually that's where your biggest problem is but they had to change their defence and they and the, uh, uh, South Africa beat them in the final by the weight of Mandela being at the final and, and having a very very rugged defence because they were able to isolate Jonah by putting three or four players on him yeah. which England didn't try to do. Or when they did try and do it, they were too small, the people they put on them. Mm-hmm. Effectively, you had to put a forward on the wing to try and stop him. But even then, he was pretty unstoppable. Um, 
an, an amazing character. When you look at him, he is, I mean, your, your analogy is perfect about the Usain Bolt of rugby because he just stood out miles and miles ahead of everyone else. Yeah. He was one of those, those special players and I, I really wanted to pay him homage. Um, he passed away on the 18th of November 2015. Oh, okay. I didn't know he died. Okay. Yeah. Um, I remember him being ill. Um, but he died from uh, a, a serious kidney disorder in '95, um, nephrotic syndrome. What is it called? Nephrotic syndrome. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he was on dialysis. Um, did I do it for about a year? Underwent a kidney transplant, and uh, yeah, then died about just over ten years later. Well, thirteen years later. Wow. From a heart wow. Wow. Like, can you imagine how fit this guy must have been and even at his age you know 40 which is not old at all he was a small no, absolutely guy. you know and um, yeah so John Lomi rest in peace amazing character what a great choice who would be your second choice so uh, I was really touched when well sorry before I go on I'm gonna I'm gonna sure. just say this um, when we deal about countries that have been accused or perpetrating large uh, scales of destruction of human beings, sport tends to come to the fore because you can't talk about politics because the politics is so disgusting what they've done. It's really difficult to find people that can stand up against that. So it's not uncommon. That, I, remember, I remember dealing with this with South Africa. That it's not uncommon that a lot of the stars are musical or sports stars because it's very difficult to talk about the actual politics sides once you've wiped out large chunks of the population or put people in apartheid situations. So sport comes to the fore quite commonly. So I make no excuse for choosing another sporting star. Just just before you move on there, um, for, for me, um, it's more a case of like I, I don't really know Australasia and Australasian heroes or people from Australasia. Like, I, like it doesn't really feature on the curriculum here. It doesn't really feature in, in everyday life education. Um, so my interactions with places outside of Europe, America, parts of Africa is generally through sports, and that's how you kind of how I kind of channel into you know other places um but it's, it's an interesting perspective though thank you thank you i mean i i would agree with that but i think there's reasons why we don't know if you know what i'm saying hmm. you know i think it's not by accident that we don't know about these things you know like i don't think it serves british history i mean we, we don't learn the truth about someone like churchill we're not going to learn the truth about you know the, the mass destruction of the the, the Australian and, and New Zealand populations, are we? I mean, it's highly unlikely that's going to be after maths first lesson in, you know, year nine at school. It's highly unlikely. Um, so I make no excuses for choosing a sportsman. And um, I think it's acknowledged in sports like rugby and cricket that Aboriginal and Maoris do really well. Like, I believe that a couple of the English rugby players are actually, you know, uh, from Maori or, or Aboriginal descent. So it's not uncommon to find them in sporting uh, teams around the world. <clears throat> so I'm going to pick on someone that I saw a program about on television and I was incredibly moved. Um, just an amazingly strong character given the abuse he had to put up with. 
I mean, we, we, we've made a big issue, rightly, in the United Kingdom about um, taking a knee for the abuse that black players get in, in the game. This guy single-handedly took a lot of the abuse in Australia <clears throat> um, for his Aboriginal looks and for defending Aboriginals. His name was Adam Good Goodies, Goods, G-O-O-D-E-S. And he was an Australian uh, footballer who played for the Sydney Swans. Okay. Now, <clears throat> he was doing okay with his career. You know, he's quite a good sportsman. He won a few things. All of that would be kind of normal, I guess, in, in a sportsman's life. Um, but on the 24th of May 2013, during the AFL, the Australian Football League's annual Indigenous Round, a 13-year-old Collingwood supporter called Goddess an ape. Upon hearing the abuse, Goodis pointed the girl out to security who ejected her from the game. After the game, Collingwood president apologised to Goods on behalf of the club. Maguire said that Collingwood had a zero-tolerance policy towards racism, but also said that the girl who later apologised did not know that what she had said was a racial slur. Good said that he was gutted and that he had never been more hurt, but nevertheless called on the community to support the girl instead of blame her. He spoke to her the following day after she phoned to apologise, saying that she had not realised how deeply it would affect him. Good has repeated that the girl should not be blamed. The environment she grew up in has shaped her response. Over the following, and this is the response from the Australian uh, rules uh, football population, over the following years, and particularly in 2015, Goodis was repeatedly and loudly booed by opposition fans at most matches. The motivation for and acceptability of the booing generated wide public debate, which dominated the media coverage for both, for, for both sports and political commentators for weeks to come. Even the Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, call, commented calling on people to treat Goodes with civility and respect. Many considered the booing to be unacceptable and motivated by racism, either because these booing, either because these booing felt affronted by his race or by the strong political positions he'd taken, and called on the AFL to take direct, direct action to stop it. Others, such as now, this is where it became like a tug of war. Others, such as commentator Sam Newman, defended the rights of Panthers to continue booing at the show of disapproval for Goodis's actions, including a perception that his approach in dealing with the Collingwood fan who called him an ape was heavy-handed, and for the statements he had made during this time as Australian of the Year, because he won Australian of the Year as a rugby as a football player, uh, which had wow. been seen to denigrate the history of European settlement of Australia. The boom of goodies had also been described as a symptom of tall poppy syndrome, which I found very interesting. The idea that because he stands up tall, he can be attacked. Um, and it's also interesting that, that in the UK, you know, this is a discussion we're having around fans booing players. You know, some people say bring the players off. Others say no, no, they've got to put up with it. You know, it's part of the game, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't be so vocal. And this is the kind of discussion we're having. They, they had this in, in that period, 2015. Um, the AFL Players Association and captain showed solidarity with Goodis, releasing a, an open statement which included the words: "We encourage supporters to demonstrate zero tolerance, and report any behaviour which vilifies a person on the basis of their characteristics such as race, religion, gender." or sexual orientation. We should encourage every fan to follow suit. During a match against Carlton in 2015, during the AFL's annual Indigenous Round, 
Goodyear celebrated a goal by performing an indigenous war dance in which he mimed throwing a spear in the direction of the Carlton cheer squad. Goodyear said afterward the incident that the dance was based on one of he had learned from the under 16 indigenous team, the Flying Boomerangs. And it was intended as an expression of indigenous pride during the indigenous round, not as a means of bending or intimidating the crowd. The symbolic act had been compared favorably to Nicky Wilmars lifting his jersey during the 93 season and Kathy Freeman when she won uh, the, the in the Olympics and she had the original, original flag wrapped around her. However, some spectators were offended by the perceived aggressive nature of the spear throwing and many considered it retaliatory against the booing he had received. It divided opinion. Um, Goodis was surprised by the attention and negative response to his dance and later apologised at any offence and saying that it was because he was depicting an Aboriginal warrior and the ceremony was a war cry, it needed to be directed at the opposing team. Owing to the stress caused by the booing and attention, he took indefinite leave from the game in 2015. Many clubs and players in the AFL supported Goodis in the weeks of his leave by wearing Indigenous-themed Jersey armbands and a, a video was prepared by 18 clubs to discourage booing. He returned the following week and played for the remainder of the season after an outpouring of support on social media. Now this is interesting, this last bit. In 2019, on the eve of the premiere of the documentary film about him, The Final Quarter, the AFL and all 18 of its club issued an unreserved apology for the sustained racism and events which drove him out of the game. So they kind of waited four years until the movie coming out about him before they offered a full apology. Wow. The statement said that the football community pledged to fight, to continue to fight all forms of racism and discrimination on and off the field. To me, he was an absolute hero for taking, for taking that single-handedly, you know, other people tried to, to show him solidarity, but he said, no, leave this to me. I'll take this on. I'm, I'm a big fella. I can take it. Um, fascinating that it split the community. I can't understand in this day and age how racism can split a community. You know, it really is just wrong and it should be dealt with. The fact that there were people thinking it's okay, you know, and the fact that he was a bit heavy to a girl, that and he wasn't even heavy. He actually offered that the community supports to support her, not that it should be attacked on her. Other people were being less generous. So I'm, I'm absolutely amazed that it could and should have been a controversy. But I'm also wondering whether that's not part of the legacy of how Australia became a nation. You know, it, it's guilt and it's confusion about how it had wiped out a population. And, um, and here's someone stand up against the racism when usually, I guess, they weren't expected to. And um, in certain parts of Australia, there are forms of segregation. Certain streets are just for Aboriginals and things like that, even today. So I think he is an absolute hero. And I'd love to sit down and have a, a you know, beer with him, to be honest with you, and just talk about his experiences. Because imagine facing that every day. You know, there's nowhere he can retreat to. Every day he has to face that in the media, in, in the football games, you know, in the dressing rooms, everywhere he goes. And, you know, you imagine here, if we were doing that in football, we would know a lot of the, the fans and the, and the footballers would support us. We'd also know there'd be quite a few that were secret, you know, right-wing sympathisers. And it would be interesting walking into every dressing room and imagine how you're going to deal with the situation. I think here we'd be more likely to have more comrades, but I think he was pretty isolated. 
and people did support him, but it was, uh, you know, it was tough because he did face abuse just for supporting him. So it'd be really interesting to sit down with him and talk to him and um, and give him the acknowledgement that he deserved. I mean, even saying sorry and even acknowledging him as an Australian Player of the Year, that's not enough. He deserves a medal for what he's gone through. You know, that's an internal battle in the country that he's helped to move the population forward by decades, just single-handedly. Yeah, I'd like to invite him, Jermaine. Wow. What an interesting one. Um, you know, as, as you were speaking, I was it, it connected me um, to the 68 Olympics, Summer Olympics in Mexico City, where we had John Carlos, Tommy Smith. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Delivering the Black Power Salute. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, um, I remember watching something about the the gentleman from Australia. In fact, I think this is the first Australian we've had now, um, and how he was forgotten in in the whole politicization of that that scene. Now, it's a very famous scene, um, the first and second and the third on the podium. <clears throat> Tommy and John delivering the Black Power salute. And uh, Norman wore a, a badge um, of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. In That's right. Of John and Tommy. And now he was ostracized from, from sport on his return. Um, this guy was someone who was a very, again, prolific runner, five time national 200 meter champion. Like, this is not something that kind of, you know, Blake had. Um, and what you were saying really spoke to me in, in how, you know, people are, sport is utilized as a, as a political tool against progress. Um, this gentleman decided, I believe, actually, that he actually gave John and, and, and um, Tommy, <clears throat> the gloves that they wore, as, it, as you can see in the picture, they're actually wearing mm. the opposite hand. Um, so just that little, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, like a memento or a little uh, a gift in some way, shape or form, um, was just really impactful. Um, his like. There's, there's a comment here um, from Carlos, I think. Um, it was either Tommy or John. And it said something along the, along the lines of, if we were getting beat up every day, he, referring to Peter, was facing a whole country. Mm. That, that's incredibly powerful. Me. I mean, I don't know if he expected, knew, or even thought that it would become something like this, but for what he did, it's similar to the, the Colin Kaepernick taking the knee and everything that ensued from there. The man was picked out of sport and rejected and, and found it really difficult to, to find a new team, which 
for somebody who's a national treasure, a national hero, Peter Norman is is a really significant figure. Um, he died in 2006, um, and eventually Australia's actually acknowledged him posthumously. They've they've issued an apology, and um, that was in 2012. And so there, there, that's that's that story there. Incredible guy. Mm. Um, he was inducted into the Sport Australia Hall of Fame. Uh, Two thousand. He was Australian. Got the Australian Sports Medal. Um, the Athletics Australia Hall of Fame in twenty ten, and only in two thousand eighteen he was given the Order of Merit from the Australian Olympic Committee. Wow. So he was really honoured after his death. Wow. I mean, I didn't even know that part of it, to be honest with you. That's quite amazing. Quite amazing. And also to, to, to you know, to make that, to make, um, like, the choice to do that in a time when not everybody was as... Um, sure to be an ally uh, that's quite an impressive uh, position to take and it's good that Australia on some levels has acknowledged that who is your is it your third or your fourth now fourth choice now yeah third, third choice okay who, who's your no, third choice? Uh, is it third I think I've done three haven't I I've, yeah, I've done I've, three I've, I've done three, three. Yeah. yeah okay so um I'd like to introduce to the party Dame Weena Cooper. She's um, <clears throat> a woman who is well known to the Maori population in New Zealand and probably to the whole of the New Zealand population now because of what she's done. In 1949, uh, when she when her second husband died, she moved from getting involved with local politics to national politics, and she became the president of the Maori Women's Welfare League, uh, which was able to improve things notably for Maori women. So this was in 1951. In 57, she stepped down as president and the annual award, and the annual conference rewarded her with the title, I'm not going to say this in Maori, so I'm saying English, the mother of the nation. During the 60s, she worked on a local level around Auckland, kept largely out of the spotlight. This changed in 75 when a coalition of Maori groups asked her to lead them in protest against the loss of Maori land. She agreed, proposing a hikoi, a symbolic march from the north tip of the North Island to Parliament in Wellington, at the other end of the island. So she walked with the, a nation of Maori women from one, from one end of the nation to the other. During the September October 75, the nearly 80-year-old Cooper then became nationally recognised, walking at the head of the Maori land march from Te Ahupa to Wellington. The slogan of the march was not one more acre of Maori land. They demanded acknowledgement of property rights under the Treaty of Waitangi. Cooper returned to Panguru in the Hokanga in 1983 and died there, age 98. 
she won a number of awards. She got the coronation honors. Uh, she got the MBE. She got the C uh, CB. She was a Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. She was. The, she got the Order of the New of New Zealand. She got New Zealand's 1990 commemorative commemoration medal, and she was awarded the New Zealand Suffrage Centennial Medal. And in, this is quite interesting. In 2020, so what's that last year? Yeah. The tunnel boring machine that will be used to construct the twin tunnels of the city rail link in Auckland between Mount Eden and Atua Station has been named the Dame Winnie Cooper. So for a a Maori, a Maori woman, she achieved such a lot in her lifetime. And that she was able at 80 to march across the country demanding rights. It was quite an incredible feat. She really was the mother of the nation, if you if you take it like that. And she'd be one hell of a dinner guest. Jermaine, mm. who's your fourth guest? My <clears throat> excuse me, my fourth guest. Um this is interesting. We're creating a bit of a, a symmetry here. Um <laughs> Fanny Cochran Smith. Oh, okay. Um, she was an Aboriginal Tasmanian, apparently one of arguably the last two um, that were up until I think it was 1905 when Fanny died. Um, Triganini was the other one. Um, she was a woman widely considered to have been the last full blooded. Aboriginal Tasmanian, although she was outlived by Fanny Cochrane Smith, who was then later on acknowledged as the last Aboriginal Tasmanian. Um, now, her claim to fame, if you like, her legacy, is that she was known for her wax cylinder recordings of Aboriginal songs made in 1903, which are, as far as they, they know, are the last and only recordings of indigenous Tasmanian language. Um, she spoke fluent, uh, she was a fluent speaker of the Flinders Island Lingua Franca, which is a Tasmanian language. And um, her recordings have been inducted into the UNESCO Australian Memory of the World Register. And that was in 2017. So after her death in 1905, it took <laughs> wow, yeah. Over a hundred years, over what, 110, 12 years before she was actually acknowledged. Wow. And she'd lived quite an interesting life. She was an orphan at one point, moved around from home to home. Um, she got married, had 11 children, and she um, they lived on like a, like a settlement and they created like a home. Where, where children would stay and they'd look after them and they, they basically grew their own fruit and derived their income from timber toiling at the land mm -hmm. in Oyster Cove to be near her mother sister and brother so we talked about Oyster Cove before didn't we that came up just before mm. someone who went back yeah the, the original the last sort of um, original Abor Aboriginal in Tasmania he used to get Oyster ships to Oyster Cove, or used to go on ships to Oyster Cove. Uh -huh. So that seems interesting. That's come up twice now, Oyster Cove. 
it, it seems to me that there are certain places like Tasmania <laughs> that yeah. seem to crop up quite a bit. <laughs> you know, uh, it seems to be like the hub of of Australasia, if you like. Yeah, um, it may be like in uh, Australia, where there's the Northern Territories. It's, it's places where you'll find uh, people who some culture more more likely to be around in those areas. I'm guessing. So with reluctance, because I've enjoyed trawling through the history of Australia and New Zealand. And so, I, I mean, I don't know if we've done a disservice to other places in the in the region, but I'm not sure where the continent begins and ends. But we did focus rather more on these two countries. Um, I guess it would be fitting for the last guest and to make it a really good, good dinner party. So lots of discussion would be a chap called Neville Bonner. Neville Bonner was an Australian politician and the first Aboriginal Australian to become a member of the Parliament. He was appointed by the Queensland Parliament to fill a casual vacancy in the representation of Queensland in the Senate, and they became the first Indigenous Australian to be elected to the Parliament by popular vote. He was an elder of the Jagera people. Um, he he um, he lived in a place called Ipswich. I kind of noticed with Australia, there's an awful lot of names that we would know from the United Kingdom. Ipswich, mm. Newcastle, and places like this. Mm. Mm. Even Queensland, you know, because of the Queen. Things like this. So one of the things when I was out there was how many names are so clearly from the United Kingdom, you know. Yeah. Um, so that was Trade, Trademarks of colonialism. Yeah, absolutely. But it's also, I think, for the people who settle there, uh, remembrance of the places they came from. So, yeah. you know, you have New York, for example, America. Obviously, certain people that come from York, you know, and, and we know Yorkshiremen can be quite proud of their heritage. So, yeah. it's, a, it's a trademark and a legacy. It's, it's anyway, the same thing with Jamaica as well. Absolutely, 100%. And, and all of the islands, to be fair. <laughs> my, my family's actually from Manchester. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, when you said you were from Manchester, I didn't know which way to play, so that was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I always, yeah, that, that, like that, I always get a little bit kind of confused when people sort of say that, because I'm like, which one, where, yeah, exactly. where is the world? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and interestingly enough, I mean, just a quick diversion, but um, the big battle in Ireland, Northern Ireland, during the civil rights demonstrations in the 60s, was whether to call the second city, because everyone knows that Belfast is the main city, the second city had two names. To the settlers from the United Kingdom, it was known as Londonderry. Mm -hmm. But to the Catholic population of Ireland, it was known as Derry or Free Derry. Yeah. And so that was interesting because that battle was literally about the, the name, the, the colonist's name or not. Um, and even today, that still is a battle for its name. I mean, because, you know, how people are that they don't always recognise the official things anymore and they just call it what they want. But it's still a battle within the culture and the politic and the religion of the people in that area. So we're talking about the same thing here. In 1960, he moved to Ipswich, uh, which where he joined the board of directors of One People of Australia League, a moderate indigenous rights organisation. He became its Queenland president. He joined the Liberal Party in 1967. 
um, Bonner was chosen to fill the vacancy and therefore he stood in the parliament. He was elected in his own right in 72, 74, 75 and 80. While in the Senate, he served on a number of committees, but was never a serious candidate for promotion to the ministry. He rebelled against the party on several issues, partly as a result of this and partly due to pressure from the other candidates. He was dropped from the Liberal ticket in 1983. He stood as an independent and was nearly successful. The Hawke government then appointed him to be to, to the board of directors of the Australian Broadcasting Company. He was unique in uh, being both an indigenous activist and a political conservative. In fact, he owed his whole political career to this combination. In the face of often savage personal criticism from left-wing indigenous activists, he denied being a token in the Liberal Party. In 1981, Bonner was the only government voice opposing a bill put forth that would allow drilling in the Great Barrier Reef. He regularly crossed the floor on bills, a characteristic that, that has endeared him to politicians today, but is often considered the reason for his political career coming to an end. In 1979, he was jointly named Australian of the Year along with the naturalist Henry Harry Butler. In 84, he was appointed Officer of the Order of Australia, and from 92 to 90, he was a member of the Griffith University Council. The university awarded him an honorary doctorate in 1993. In 1998, he was elected to the Constitutional Convention as a candidate of, Australia, of Australians for a constitutional monarchy. He died in 1999, aged 76. His, just as a forenote, his, his grand-niece, Senator Joanna Lindgren, an LNP Senator for Queensland, was the first female Aboriginal Senator for Queensland. So I think he'd be an interesting guest because I think he tries to play both sides and he would certainly uh, ferment discussion amongst the other guests that we'd have at the table. But I think it's also worth noting that he's the first sort of Aboriginal to be elected into the Australian Parliament, given that, you know, historically, 100 years before, they tried to wipe out the whole of the the Aboriginal population. So an, an, an interesting guest to have at the table. Jermaine, who's your fifth guest? Well, it's, it's been an incredible journey throughout Australasia today. And um, we've covered some some history, some historical figures. Yeah. We've covered some, some more modern figures. Um, and <laughs> I'd like... I have to kind of sort of preface this because, I mean, it, it's debatable in terms of like his level of impact and, and the kind of uh, presence that he had on an international um, stage in terms of what he was really about. Um, Stephen Robert Irwin, hmm. the crocodile hunter. Right, Australian zookeeper, wildlife expert, environmentalist, and conversation. Sorry, conservationist. Conservationist. He was was also a conversationist too. Um, At the dinner party, we'd need a conversationist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So he began um, like his sort of cruise to worldwide fame from the television series The Crocodile Hunter which lasted from 1996 to 2007 this was internationally broadcast and he co-hosted the show with his wife Terry Um, 
in uh, September 2006, the year that he died. His cause of death was a stingray injury. Wow. Stung while while shooting, um, just doing what he does. And to be honest, for me, that really symbolizes that whole idea of dying doing what you love. Like this is a man who is who is fearless, dealing with crocodile, feeding them and petting them, and like these wild animals that majority of us would be <laughs> like too scared to even think about the idea of yeah, no, absolutely to to you know nature. This is this is a, a real nature man. There's nothing that that I can see or say that that would kind of go beyond that. But given that you're inviting him, mm. I'm curious how you feel about how would you feel about being in his position of going into the into the sort of uh, into the wild, like on your own and tackling nature. If you could envisage being him, mm-hmm. how would that make you feel? I think it's inspiring. I mean, you'd be prepared to do it. Well, I guess the question is. Absolutely. Right. To go with Steve Irwin and go crocodile hunting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm I mean, just I'd, curious. I'd, I'd, I'd be scared. Do. Don't get me wrong. I'd be scared. But I think it would be a, a feel the fear and do it anyway. <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, and how do you think he'd feel being at the dinner party with a lot of people that would question Australia's history? I think he would be a fascinating um, person to speak to in terms of Australian history, at least from a wildlife and conservation and environmental perspective. How are Australians, how are they treating the land today? Yeah. He he can answer those questions. So I wonder how he he feels about uh, the Northern Territories where, you know, there are large numbers of Aboriginals still live there and, and practice wildlife conservation, wildlife um, exploration. I wonder if he's been up there, if he's mixed with them, if he's learned from them. You know, I just wonder what the, the correlation... It'd be interesting to talk to him and see uh, what his background was to get to that position. So he'd be an interesting guest, and I think a lot of people at the table would want to ask him an awful lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you know He's of Irish descent from his father's side. That wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Um, we have to remember why people ended up living in Australia and New Zealand. There were two types of people that left the United Kingdom to go and live in these countries. One set were literally prisoners. So you could be in prison for anything. And we have to remember in that period, a lot of Irish people were fighting against uh, the colonization of their country and the consequence of their behavior, i.e. fighting against it, would have led them to become prisoners and shipped across the world. There are a number of Irish songs that that capture um, the sentiment of being forcefully removed a thousand, hundreds of thousand miles from your home. And then the other sort of people would be settlers who were offered um, a better life if they went out there, including, you know, 
guards and prison uh, policemen and people like that who would be there initially to look after the colony of prisoners that they were taking over there. It's like one of those movies where you see a colony of prisoners taken into space and you'd have to have the guards go with them. So a lot of that would have come from Irish backgrounds, Scottish backgrounds, etc. You know, that is quite a big uh, characteristic of colonisation around the world. I mean, if you look, say, for example, Jamaica, there's an awful lot of Scottish heritage in Jamaica. Yeah. I've got a feeling I read somewhere that the Scots taught the Brazilians how to play football. You know, so there's an awful lot of Scottish, Irish, Welsh um, settle, settling around the world uh, yeah. at the behest of the British Empire. My my last name's Scottish. <laughs> oh, there we go. So we've learned Manchester and your last name is Scottish. Yeah. So, so that's why we're at a curious anarchist podcast, because these are the things you learn. Um, it's interesting that his Irishness would have brought out certain characteristics in a discussion around the dinner table. And uh, uh, the history of his roots and the roots of the native population that would be at a dinner table would be interesting uh, journey to go on, I think. I think it would be very interesting. I think we'd learn a lot from it. Sure. In fact, I'm quite and looking forward to this dinner party now. At some point in my life, I'd love to go to the Australian Zoo. The Australia Zoo. Zoo? Yeah, his his uh, his zoo, Steve's zoo. I think he prefer it if you went. Now, it? I think he prefer it if you went out into the, you know, he went walkabout and went oh, into absolutely. the. He prefer that, that than if you went to a zoo. I think he'd like you to go out somewhere in the northern territories and get on a sort of canoe and just absolutely trip out around the. Well, he'd love you to do that, I'm sure. But we uh, hopefully we can ask him at the dinner party anyway, and. Uh, see what he'd advise you to do best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think we've that. given, as Fair Dinkum, a analysis of, of the people we'd like to invite to our dinner party, as we could do, given our initial acknowledgement of the zone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I hope that everyone uh, would enjoy this dinner party and, and uh, raise a glass with us. And... Uh, I wonder, who are we going to be tackling next uh, Monday then, Jermaine? Ooh, um... Have we done Eastern Asia? Asia? I don't think we've tackled Asia. No, we haven't. We haven't. No, we haven't yet. Let's, yeah, let's do Asia. Okay. Interesting, okay. That will be very interesting. That will be very interesting. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I'm, you know, I'm going to enjoy my um, my barbecue here in Australia, and then I'm going to dip over to Asia and enjoy the relative delights of that dinner party next week. Jermaine, I want to thank you. As usual, you're a spontaneous and exciting guest. I only hope the other 10 could live up to your <laughs> open-minded curiosity. It's been wonderful, Mark. Really appreciate it. It's uh, been a wonderful dinner. Um, same time next week at yours. Hey, let's hope we have more food for thought. Boo boo. <laughs> Thank you very much. This is the Curious Anarchy podcast um, by exclusive invite only. 
with myself, Jermaine Gregory and Mark Wilson. Thank you.